stay hungry, stay foolish. Before we launch into the latest installment of the Brains, Beliefs and Biases series here on the Innovation Show, I want to thank our sponsor Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com. Let's get into the latest installment of Brains, Beliefs and Biases and this one the magic of sleep thinking. Imagine solving problems and increasing creativity while you sleep. Today's book introduces a simple but revolutionary program that shows how to do just that by learning to tune into your deepest intuitions. Case studies illustrate the effects of sleep thinking on ordinary individuals. This tool for idea generation and life purpose clarification offers answers that lead to actions and results in positive changes, all by getting clear on the real nature of a problem and learning to listen for the answers. It is a great pleasure to welcome the author of that book and a multitude of others, but the focus of today's episode in the Brains, Beliefs and Bias series is his book, The Magic of Sleep Thinking, How to Solve Problems, Reduce Stress and Increase Creativity all while you sleep. It is a great pleasure to welcome Eric Maisel. Eric, welcome to the show. Great to be here with you. It's funny hearing the title of the book because the book started out as just sleep thinking, then it became the power of sleep thinking, then it became the magic of sleep thinking. Publishers have their ideas about what titles should be. <laughs> well, hopefully our audience is intrigued as I was. I, I have to say before we even start, I am a sleep thinker, but I never had a program around it. I never had a structure around it. I've written my own book. And most of those chapters, I, I kind of say to people, they wrote themselves while I slept because I was often waking up and kind of going, I got it, I got it. And I'd scramble to write it. But it's so great having a structure around that. And I'm sure this happens to you. You've written multitude of books, and I'm sure you've written a lot of them in your sleep. Absolutely. I hand over my current book to my sleep thinking mind. And I go directly to my work first thing every day, five in the morning. And that's why I get lots of books done. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about it. But even if you do good sleep thinking, if you don't turn to your work, then this, whatever you have been thinking about just evaporates. You just turn to the new day and it's lost. So part of the program, one of the key steps is processing the night immediately after you wake up. I know this book is going to appeal to our audience so much, Eric, because it's not just about becoming more creative, but it's about solving big, hairy, audacious goals, big problems that you have in your own life. And we're going to get into all that. But I thought one of the ways we'd start was to talk about the origins of this book, because I mentioned your other books, you've studied creativity, you've studied uh, stress reduction. But it was through many of the interviews with creative people that you discovered that they were all doing this, but they didn't necessarily have a structure around it. And this is what led to the magic of sleep thinking. That's correct. I've been working with creative and performing artists for 35 or 40 years now. I understand how they work and also how they don't work. That is when they're not getting their work done. I can tell why they're not getting their work done. And one of the reasons is that they're not getting to their work in a daily way first thing. So it was in working with creative and performing artists that this all came to me, but also there was a big study in 2004, <clears throat> big German study, where really for the first time, researchers awakened people in non-REM sleep instead of REM sleep. For hundred years since Freud's interpretation of dreams in 1899, we've been waking people up in REM sleep. We've been over curious about dreams, spent a lot of time on dreams, but not on the way in which the brain thinks during the night. And then in 2004, German researchers decided to wake people up in non-REM sleep when we think. And they discovered that poets were writing poetry and mathematicians were solving math puzzles. People were thinking. And so this was a piece of breakthrough research that uh, buttressed my understanding of what was going on and also um, allowed the book to be published because, uh, as you probably know, everything now is supposed to be evidence-based, even though we're perfectly clear intuitively that something's true. Now we have to act like a piece of research is necessary 
to buttress that truth. So fortunately, that study came out just at the time I was trying to hawk this book. So that, that, that worked well. Let's give some of the examples because one of the most intriguing things that happened to me was one of the dreams I had and I have to I have to really dig deep at myself here to go was that my dream or not because one of the things I do is I listen to affirmations as I sleep or I listen to uh, positive subliminal programming and I often used to listen to the lectures of Alan Watts and I wondered once because I had a, I had a dream that I wrote into my own book of a snake swallowing its own tail. And then later on, I read about Kukule <laughs> and his idea of the Ouroboros essentially, which became DNA or, or, uh, or benzene. And I you you talked about this, and you talk about a multitude of examples of great inventors that come up with solutions or mathematicians that come up with solutions in their sleep. I wanted to mention them up front for two reasons. One is to give the examples of them. And I'd love you to share a few. But also to say to our audience, this is not about being a genius. This is about solving problems in your life. Questions such as as Eric addresses in the book, is my partner having an affair? What should I do with my life? Should I move out from this uh, person I live with who's being very noisy in the apartment? How do I address a suspicion I have that one of my children is taking drugs or alcohol? all these basic questions that go through our minds throughout life, Eric addresses those, uh, those and sleep thinking is a way to get to the solutions for those problems. Over to you, Eric, maybe to start with some of the high level mathematician and scientific examples. Actually, I want to go sideways a little bit from what you brought up. There was a time I did a book called Life Purpose Bootcamp some years ago, and I was interviewing folks who presumably had a pretty good sense of their life purposes and their meaning-making needs. And I discovered an interesting thing in doing those interviews, and that was that for each of, each of the folks I interviewed, there came a point where the meaning had drained out of what they were currently doing, whether it was teaching or their faith or whatever it was, it just no longer held meaning for them. But here's the interesting... It's not so interesting that meaning drains away. That happens. We know that. The interesting part was that even though they knew that meaning was gone, it took them on average five years to make a change. Five years to either give up tenure or, or leave their order or whatever it was that they needed to do. It took them a long time to do it. For me, that speaks to both the possibility of change, certainly, but the difficulty of making the changes we need to make. That's why I think sleep thinking is so useful for not just problem solving in the generic sense or inventiveness in the generic sense, but in helping us make movement sooner rather than later, which is one of those things that we would like to do in life so that we can move on with our lives and fill up our lives with new meaning and new life purposes. So that's all by way of saying, Yes, this is about solving problems, but it's also about propelling your life forward in a, in a more rapid way, in a way where you don't feel like you're just going through the motions year in and year out. To give a simple example, not a high bar example, but just a simple example pops to mind of a woman who, whose husband had just gotten one of those bad cancer diagnoses. And the problem that she had was of course, dealing with it, but the particular problem she was dealing with was how to, tell the, how, the, how to tell the kids, how to share with the adult kids the fact that their father was dying. And that's what she gave her sleep thinking mind as a sleep thinking prompt. How should I tell, how can I tell them? By the way, just to say what I just said more carefully, one of the steps in the book is to go to bed with a sleep thinking prompt. That is to have a kind of wonder about something, to be wondering. My catchy phrase for that is to go to bed with a wonder rather than a worry, but to be wondering about something. So her wonder was, uh, what's the best way to tell the kids? And I think you can tell that if you don't ask yourself that kind of question, you may just put off telling the kids and put off telling the kids until it's way past when you had wished you had told them. At any rate, for her, it came up for her that there was a particular park 
that the family loved and that she was going to prepare a picnic and take them to the park and tell them there. And that's what she did. So it's those kinds of day in and day out ordinary problems that we put off solving that can be solved using this sleep thinking to be fancy about it methodology. It's really just inviting your brain to do what it wants to do. As you know, since this is your area of interest, the brain's got to be the most interesting thing in the universe. And we can reduce it to, you know, brain scans or what have you. We can reduce it to something much smaller than it, than it is, but it's huge. My wife and I just watched the other day that movie about the Indian mathematician, whose name I can't pronounce, who in, a, in about the... Um, Oh, 1920s, I believe it was, was solving impossible mathematical problems in his mind without, without doing the steps. He was just coming to the conclusions. His brain was obviously going through the steps. It had to, in some way, go through the steps to get to the conclusions. But when he sent his notes to his favorite professor at Cambridge, whom he hoped to work with, Professor said, you, you can't know this stuff. If you're not showing me the steps of the proof, you're just making this up, to which his reply was, no. <laughs> I'm absolutely sure this is the, and ultimately all of his proofs were proven true. He had to slow down and do the proofs, which for actually a smart person is sometimes hard to do, to slow down and do the, the intermediary work. But that's all by way of saying the brain is amazing. And it can provide us with our best answers to simple, simple, to everyday problems like, where can I tell the kids this? Or the biggest questions that we have. And for creative folks, there's almost always a naughty problem in the center of whatever they're working on. The kind of problem that, the way I say it to myself sometimes is that the book I'm working on may not be available to me yet. There's something that I don't know that without that information, I can't really proceed. And that's absolutely sleep thinking material. That's what, if you, if you turn that kind of question, parenthetically, I forget the guy's name, but, but the fellow who did a book on slave trades, I think the book was called The Middle Passage, if I remember that correctly, just popping into my head that he couldn't proceed with his book until he figured out how God would appear on the ship. It was a, so to speak, practical problem. He wanted a non-cliche way of God appearing on the ship and he couldn't continue working on his book until, so he turned that over. He, he, he put it more in the realm of power napping or dreaming than sleep thinking. That he, Sleep thinking was not his language for what he was doing, but of course, it is what he was doing. And he came up with the answer that it would appear as a certain kind of totem in the hold. In other words, he got the answer. But without the answer, without these kinds of answers, whether they're everyday matters or creative matters, we are stuck. And creative folks find themselves stuck. They don't quite know why they're stuck. And they, have, they present other reasons for why they're stuck, that they're too busy or they're too tired or they're too this or they're too that. And they don't quite realize that there's some naughty problem that they need to turn over to their sleep thinking brain. And once that problem is set, it could be a plot problem. It could, could be any sort of problem, but typically there are such problems and they need to be solved. You address throughout the book some questions that have obviously come to you over time from maybe keynote speeches or from your clients, because er Eric also coaches sleep thinking amidst other things to his clients. But one of the things you say is, some people ponder quite early in the process, they kind of go, that's just plain old thinking, right? And you address that question. And then you say, you got to look at some of the research of one of our former guests, which is Susan Greenfield. And she talked about the idea of neural gestalts. And I thought that would be interesting to explain that to our audience as well, Eric, if you wouldn't mind. It's a it's a beautiful picture of how the brain operates and connects to ideas from Buddhism and other places of how we harm ourselves by thinking thoughts that don't serve us and how every thought grabs neurons. 
So to say this simply, a thought is nothing more than a certain number of neurons, a lot of them, 100 million, 200 million, 300 million, gathering together to do a certain kind of work, to make a thought. And that's what she's calling a neuronal gestalt, namely neurons coming together to do a certain kind of work for a certain amount of time. Some of our neuronal gestalts, to, to use that language, or some of our thoughts, which don't serve us, remain alive and pester us forever. It might be a thought like, I'm not talented. I'm not talented sounds like just the cognition, so to speak, but it's a neuronal gestalt. It's a thought that has grabbed 300 million or three or the X number of your neurons to maintain that thought. That means that you don't have those 300 million neurons available to do some good work. And to, to switch metaphors, it's, it's like monkey mind in Buddhism. If you're having lots of small thoughts, that's what you're having. And that's what most people are doing all day long. They're having one small thought. Not all of them are negative thoughts. It might be, I need to pick up my kid at three, or should I saute the spinach with garlic or not? It can be that kind of thought. But even a thought like that, which is not a negative thought, grabs neurons. So we need a mechanism. We need a way of carving out at least a portion of the day where we, where we release the grip of neurons on all of those small thoughts. It's really what the creative process is, is releasing the grip of neurons around all the thoughts it doesn't need to be, our brain doesn't need to be thinking at that particular moment. And that's easier said than done. It, it's hard to get, in my vernacular, it's hard to get quiet enough because oddly, what releasing the grip of all of these neuronal gestalts sounds like is silence. It's a pregnant silence because it's the silence into which ideas are gonna percolate up. But to begin with, it's silence and people hate that silence. They want to immediately fill it with the next thought. For a lot of people, it feels like a near death, a really bad experience to be that quiet inside. That's why so many people have the radio on, and if anybody knows what a radio is anymore. So many people have the radio on all day long or something on all day long. Fox News on all day long, just to have, just so they don't have to approach silence. So that's all by way of saying all the thoughts we think grab neurons. If we want to solve problems or think deeply, it, it's that absent-minded professor image where that person just is not going to remember that the dinner bell just rang or that it's his wife's birthday or that he was supposed to have picked up the kids at three that sort of irresponsibility, that irresponsibility is about not maintaining small thoughts. Now, that's not always good to not maintain small thoughts. You do want to pick up the kids at three. You don't want them standing out there in the rain. But what we're talking about here is how to ma maximize our brain's efficiency, utility, and brilliance. And that's by maybe for the first time, not thinking small thoughts. I love what you said there about the quietude, essentially, that one of the great things that happened to me during COVID, I, I think during the COVID lockdown, I saw it as a way of cocooning, literally, where you were becoming something new during the COVID period, because it, it made you reflect on things is, you know, the when people went through a period of watching everything that was available on Netflix or Amazon Prime or Disney Plus, and they ran out of those things. And it's like, what do I do now? And for a lot of people, they reflected and they wondered, am I in the right role? You know what? I don't really like my job. I don't like my boss. I don't like my partner, whatever it might have been. But I thought of a quote by Blaise Pascal, and it was all of men's worries or problems stem from his inability to sit quiet in a room. And this links nicely to something that you talk about in the book, which is not only do we need to prepare for sleep in order to be quiet because most of what happens and what most what percolates for most of us is the worries of the day we revisit them during the night but then you mention a quote in the book and i think it's by henri poincare who said that uh, that to invent is to choose and this goes to the very core of what you talk about is that you need to be able to discern what's junk or what's just recycled thoughts in your mind 
And what are those wonders that you're answering? And what are you actually digging into in your sleep? And this is a core aspect of sleep thinking. There's a lot of a lot of complications, a lot of complicated stuff in, in what you just mentioned. First, let me tease some of the ideas apart. Number one, people don't understand this. Creative people especially don't understand this. Choosing by its very nature provokes anxiety. I just want to pause there, let people take that in because the creative process in its essence is one choice after another. Put the comma in, take the comma out, put a little red here, put a little blue there. It's choosing on and on and on ad infinitum. Since choosing provokes anxiety, what the would-be creator does is flee the encounter. That's what we do when we're made anxious by something is we get the heck out of there. So an awful lot of would-be creative folks and creative folks are fleeing their work all the time without knowing that what's going on is that they have a next choice and a next choice and a next choice to make and they don't feel up to facing that choosing. It's all by way of saying, we have to get very easy with choosing. Doesn't mean we're gonna make the right choice. We have to make choices. We have to send our character to Paris and it's 40,000 words later, that was the wrong thing to have done, so be it. We have to, to put her back where she was and send her to Zanzibar next, but we have, to, we have to have sent her to Paris or somewhere or else we're not writing. So we have to make those choices, even though it provokes anxiety. What this means in part for me is that every creative person, every person, but every creative person needs some anxiety management skills that work, that are portable and that work. This is a separate subject. I did a book on this called Mastering Creative Anxiety, in which I present, I think, 20 categories of anxiety management tactics. But creative folks need some tactics, whether they're simple breathing tactics or cognitive tactics or, or somatic tactics, whatever it is, reorientation, disidentification. I can name a million things that people can try. Most people don't own an anxiety management technique that works for them. They may have read a book about it 15 years ago, read the relaxation technique or something, but they don't own it. And they may, have a, they may have a current meditation practice or something. So they are perfectly relaxed for 20 minutes in the morning, but that's not when you need to be not anxious. You need to be not anxious when you're trying to get to the computer screen and work on your book. That's when you need to be not anxious, not in that beautiful, blissful 20 minutes or hour of meditation in the morning. So that's all by way of saying choosing is a huge subject, comma, I advocate creating a sleep thinking prompt, which is the fruit of some thought as to what might be the right prompt to get you to the conclusion you're looking for, for whatever the problem is that you've posed. Your first sleep thinking prompt may not be the right one. You may have chosen something that doesn't quite generate the solution you're looking for, the solution you need. There's no exact number of days where you should stick with the same sleep thinking prompt that you've started out with. But if after two, three, four days, nothing is nothing in particular is percolating, that when you wake up in the morning, there's nothing in particular there, then it's time to probably choose a different sleep thinking prompt and give that a chance. There's nothing really linear here. There's nothing to say about exactitude. But in a general way, that sleep thinking prompt is a choice. And like all choices, it may not be the right choice. And so you don't want to throw up your hands and say, oh, this sleep thinking doesn't work for me. If you're not getting an answer or a solution in two days, really believe in the idea that maybe the way you, frame the, you, the way you framed your th sleep thinking prompt wasn't quite right. And now you get to try something else. The process does work, but it may take some um, maneuvering, some manipulating, some rejiggering for it to work. Eric, I thought at this stage we'd tee our audience up for part two. And not that we're finished yet. I'm uh, Eric's got a coaching client after this session, so we're going to do two parts. But I thought we'd tease our audience with a few exercises. And one, to the end of discernment, as Poincaré said, to, to invent is to discern or to choose. 
the same thing has to be done for us. But in order to do that, the first exercise you propose is, well, you got to have a dream journal and you need this as uh, your piece of equipment that you're going to need throughout the whole process. This is the very, very first step. Maybe we'll take our audience through that and then we'll get into the steps itself. There's 18 in total. We're not going to get through them all. So I might chunk some of them in order for us to share as much as possible. But I highly recommend getting the book in order to see the case studies because the case studies bring the steps to life. Yeah, let me respond in a slightly updated way. Um, and that is whether to call it a dream journal or a sleep thinking journal. I've subsequent to this book um, written about and taught something I call the focus journal method. A lot of people love to journal um, and actually acquire, accumulate 50 or 100 or 150 journals and then try to mine it for their memoir or for their fiction or their nonfiction, which which becomes a difficult task, but that's a separate question. But because so many people journal, but don't, so to speak, make use of their journal, I mean, their journal serves them as expressive writing in the moment, but doesn't necessarily help them solve problems. I created something I call the focus journal method, which is, an, and I'm not gonna go through the eight steps because I probably don't even remember them, but it's an eight step process of moving from one of these kinds of questions or problems that we've been talking about can be a creative problem, it could be a life problem, career problem, it could be anything. Moving step by step through self inquiry and self awareness to the conclusion, including, and these are big deal ideas, including steps, I'm going to call them six and seven, I think that may be accurate. Aligning your thoughts with whatever intentions come out of your journaling and aligning your behaviors with whatever intentions come out of your journaling. The point for me is that by doing this kind of self-awareness work, you end up at the end of this process, not just with words on the page, but with thoughts that are worth thinking and actions that you know to take. So I, I think that whether to call it again, a dream journal or a sleep thinking journal or a focus journal method, there's a, there's a way of engaging in self-inquiry and self-awareness that can make all the difference in the world in moving from some incohate, not quite understood mass of internal information to right thinking and right acting. There's a beautiful quote, Eric, that I thought I'd share just to, again, encourage your audience about how much this can help. And as I mentioned, you have so many great case studies throughout the book, and maybe you might share one based on this quote that I absolutely love from the book. You said for many of us, so much is going on that we can't dissect our lives in a neat way or come up with a single problem that stands out from all the rest. Often, we just feel a lack or a hole in our lives, without being able to articulate what that hole or lack represents. Or maybe we have so much personality changes to make, becoming more confident, more self-trusting, more disciplined, and so on, that no single change sticks out or seems more important than any of the others. Very often, we can't seem to isolate or articulate a single thing to work on. And that's a case for many people, and I work as an exec coach. I find this as well, that you have to actually help the coachee find what they want to work on first. Otherwise, you're going to be going around in circles. And this is a difficult task for so many people. There's a lot in what you're saying that makes me want to go um, all over the place. But we'll go all over the place. I'm sure folks can follow. <laughs> That's the very essence of this show, Eric. You're in the right place. I'm in the right place. So first, I have a very simple theory of personality or model of personality which I find robust and useful in working with folks. And I think it's actually true. And that's the personality is made up of three parts, original personality, formed personality, and available personality. The beauty and value of this little model is that it takes original personality into account as important. Psychology has nothing to say about original personality. It makes believe that we all start out as blank slates, which is ridiculous. Anybody who's had kittens or puppies or kids knows that every creature comes into the world itself, for sure. So there is original personality, which we have to deal with our lifelong. And I'm going to say a lot in a few words, but let's say that you came into the world a little sadder than the next person. 
that is not the clinical because that's not the clinical disorder of of depression that's a built-in baked-in sadness that we may have to live with our whole life long rather than getting a mental disorder diagnosis down the road and then powerful chemicals it would be lovely if we understood if it's the case that this may be part of our original personality that we have to deal with but that's a tangent. So we have original personality, formed personality, that's the person we stiffen into. And then what I call available personality, which is our remaining freedom to be the person we would like to be. And I see that as a kind of amount that shifts over time, available personality. If we're currently an active addict and running around town looking for a fix, we don't have that much available personality available. But the second we enter recovery, the second we go to a 12 step meeting, something's shifted. We have a little more available personality. We don't have all, we don't have all of our personality recovered. But we have some more amount recovered. So that's all by way of saying that one way to think about the thing you were talking about is in terms of a personality upgrade. That is we can make use of the idea that we have available personality to reclaim some of our formed personality and turn ourselves into the person we would like to be. That's, that's A. B, we all need a paradigm shift from the idea of the purpose of life to the idea of life purpose choosing, that, that there's no singular purpose to life, but there are multiple life purposes which we get to choose. We have for thousands of years had the, the metaphor of the purpose of life, which harms people. The metaphor harms people because they think there's one thing that they're supposed to know or follow or do, which makes no sense. And we should know better than that by now, but we don't quite. So we need this shift to life purpose choice, choosing life purpose choices. And when we work with clients, this helps them better understand what goal setting is about. It's not just about picking something, but it's about maybe for the first time, identifying their life purpose choices, maybe rank ordering them if that's possible, and understanding, again, maybe the first time, what's important. And that personality upgrade from A may be one of those things that is important. So that's B, the idea of a paradigm shift from life purpose, which is a bad idea, to, the, to life purposes, which I think is a good idea. C, we don't understand meaning very well at all. And we have the same paradigm shift to make the needed paradigm shift to make from seeking meaning, which is again, thousands of year old metaphor, bad metaphor, man's search for meaning, nothing to search for. We need to shift that to making meaning. And when we begin to understand that meaning is just a certain kind of subjective psychological experience, it's all it is. It's this kind of special one and a weird one, but that's all it is then suddenly we realize it's going to come and go. Meaning is going to come and go, just like every other psychological, just like joy or anger or anything. And then finally, we can be not upset when meaning vanishes for a while. Right now, people get awfully upset if life doesn't feel meaningful. Why should it feel meaningful all the time if it's just a certain kind of psychological experience? So comma, what this means in shorthand is that we should be living our life purposes, not always taking the temperature of our meaning. And if people can make that shift away from is life meaningful to what are my life purposes and am I living them, that will help them make the kinds of strong choices that you at the beginning of this question invited me to chat about, period. <laughs> <laughs> Beautifully articulated, man. Beautiful. I want to dig into that a little bit. Because as Aristotle said, the first thing to do is know thyself. And you start the 18 steps with know thyself, essentially, what you call a commitment to self awareness. And here you say, Freud and the psychoanalysts were right to say that we're defended against knowing ourselves and Carl Jung and the depth psychologists were right to propose the idea of blind spots, those areas of our lives that we have trouble spotting. The first step of the sleep thinking program is to dispute your natural tendency to avoid knowing yourself. And under this section, and I'd love you to expand on this. 
you list a variety of areas in which we commonly lack self-awareness from anxiety to discipline but one that I thought was really important and I'd love you I'd love to highlight is one that aligns with the very purpose of this show which is that we are open to an understanding of our unmet dreams because oftentimes people live with the regret or with the feeling of they left something on the table for their lives. And that is something that's one of the reasons I do this show, I I really want to help people make those brave decisions. So over to you, Eric, to unpack this big one. Yeah. Again, lots to say, let me start with one headline. And that is folks tend not to understand the extent to which they've given life a thumbs down that they believe life to be a cheat, that the experience that they had as a child, even if it was a very positive experience, is not the same experience they have through adolescence where the shifting begins to happen into adulthood where necessary reality testing makes them understand that there are a thousand pianists for every slot and a thousand painters for every slot, etc. And somewhere along the line, they get demoralized. It isn't that they're not going through the motions, but they are, they get demoralized and they move to this place of, I don't matter and my efforts don't matter. And I'm just excited matter. The universe could excite me for a while and it did it and I'm going to pass and that's that. And so what? That's the postmodern vibe in everyone. Maybe not in the most fundamental religious person, but in most secular folks, most secular humanists, let's call them, is that feeling that life is proving a cheat. I try to sell every client on the idea that that they matter and that their efforts matter, comma, but that they're going to have to prove the exception if they want to realize their dreams. That the ordinary result in life is to not get what you want. Unless you get lucky, you run into Francis Ford Coppola on the street corner and he says, let me give you a movie. Yeah, okay. That happens once in a billion times. But basically, we're not going to get what we want unless we prove the exception. What I wanted to say was there's a reason why sort of one book follows another book for me. Because one of the ways that a human being can prove the exception is by doing something in the service of their big dreams every day, which is why I just recently did a book called The Power of Daily Practice. Creative folks know, they don't want to admit this, but they know that if they miss three, four days, a year has vanished. It's not that three days vanished. Who cares? That's okay. Maybe they were living some other of their life purposes for those three days. But the problem with three days vanishing is that months, weeks, months, and years vanish, which is why daily practice is so important. I think maybe I'll I'll let you lead me wherever you would like to go next with with these ideas, um, let me hand the ball back to you for a second. Although it being football, let me kick the ball back to you for a second. It was speaking of that, actually, I, I, I had the great privilege to play a 10 year career as a professional rugby player in, in sport. And I wasn't that good, Eric, like, and I, I say I bring this up because I see this a lot with my friends who I grew up with, who were actually talented athletes they were better than I was but they didn't do the daily practice they didn't do the work they relied on their talent over their discipline and one of the things when you're not very good you learn early is discipline and it it's been such a gift to me for the entirety of my life and it helps me I see discipline as this as this laser that I can point to something else and go I'm going to do that now with this gift of discipline that I Let me just amplify that just for the sake of those folks who don't like the discipline word. Um, Pavarotti has a quote I like, which is people say I'm disciplined, but it's not discipline. I'm devote. It's devotion. 
And there's a big difference. I think if folks hold those dual ideas of discipline and devotion, that's a better model than discipline alone. Because discipline alone is a very white knuckly, rough kind of way of living a life. We need that love, passion, enthusiasm, curiosity, and all the other synonyms for devotion. Um, so I just wanted to add that to the mix because I think often it's not exactly discipline. You can't really white knuckle a novel into existence through discipline. There has to be something there that you're loving. I agree. And, and just parenthetically, I just have to share an anecdote which has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But when our younger daughter was, I'm not sure what, eight or nine or 10 or 11, she fell from a horse that she was riding and fractured her shoulder in many places. And by accident, her orthopedic surgeon had just been that week studying rugby injuries. And this was an American orthopedic surgeon, but he just was interested in Australian rugby injuries. And just by virtue of him having been studying that, he, he figured out what pins her shoulder needed <laughs> it's wonderful I, I i thought you were going to say like the alan watts story of the chinese farmer the conscription officers came and they wouldn't take her for the army <laughs> I, I, I let our audience figure that one out just what i was going to say was in working with clients who have lost their enthusiasm lost their way lost their enthusiasm lost their mojo i'll talk to them about devotion and, and discipline these ideas but i'll invite them to think about being five or six or seven again and the pure love they had for sitting in a corner reading a book or whatever it was they loved. That's the purest love in the universe. Sitting there in that corner, reading that book at, at seven or eight, nothing like it. And if you can help a client, help a person, help a human being, remember what that love feels like. There's no, no love like it and they can remember it. And that can serve them today to motivate them today. It, we're, we're, we're not, we're, we're a different person as a grown up from that five year old, and we can't reclaim that naivete and that beauty. Can't quite reclaim that beauty, but we can remember something about that that matters to us today. Beautiful. I love that. I love that. Even the image I, I see myself doing my Lego in the corner of the room, the big box, no instructions at all. But um, there's a Jim Rowan quote, Jim Rowan quote that I absolutely love. It's like, do you want to live with the pain of discipline or the pain of regret? And that's just always been etched into my brain. And I, I wanted to bring up you mentioned the duality of discipline and devotion. But there's also and it just happens I was writing about this, I write, I write a weekly blog and I was writing about cognitive dissonance, because we had the great Elliot Aronson on the show. And we talked about this term cognitive dissonance that comes from Leon Festinger. And I, I thought about that because it, it actually talks to one of the important aspects of this digging in and self-awareness by the way we're only step one of 18 <laughs> just to say where we are on all of this because you tell us our brains know not to deliver up the truth because it knows that we don't want the truth because so we have to actually be very specific with our brains and go no i do i want the truth here and i would love our audience to do the exercise that you suggest that we do here, maybe in the interim between part one and part two, because you say we'll gain much more than we could possibly imagine. And maybe you'll elaborate on this know yourself exercise where you write a page about each of the following questions, what I don't want to know about myself, and would it be so bad if I revealed my own secrets to myself? These are magical questions that can unlock ourselves and get us to experience life to the fullest. I want to do a prequel to that exercise. Um, just there's an exercise I share somewhere, I'm not exactly sure where, about tolerating a difficult thought for 10 seconds. And I think that's a prequel to the, to the exercise you just described, because in order to do the, the exercise you described, we have to be able to tolerate the difficult thinking, difficult thoughts that may arise from the exercise you just mentioned. So I think that's a prequel exercise of, ju of just trying to bring up some difficult thought like maybe I need a divorce or maybe I need to change jobs or whatever it might be to bring up the difficult thought and just be with it. By the way, parenthetically, 
we're going to be all over the place and we'll need to stop probably abruptly, but I have a recent book out called Redesign Your Mind, which is interesting because it, it sets up the metaphor of your mind as a room that you can redesign and redecorate, which is an interesting metaphor. And I invite people to like install windows so a breeze blows through and install an easy chair so that they're not on a bed of nails any longer, etc. Different kinds of visualizations to make one's mind a more congenial place. But one of the visualizations is to install a speaker's corner, like the famous speaker's corner in Hyde Park in London, um, where you can speak your truth, at least to yourself. Speaking it in the world is a different question because there are real safety issues. Real journalists are really assassinated in real countries. So we have to be careful about saying if, if something's true, just speak it. That's a different issue. But at least we have to be able to say the truth to ourselves. And that's what that visualization of, a, of an internal interior speaker's corner is about. Uh, I'm not sure where we are exactly. So again, I'll circle back <laughs> around. But it, it's really about, these are all different ways of saying a metaphor I use or a phrase I use in the philosophy of life I've been developing called Kirism is taking a step to the side. That is, we are moving through life this way, frontally, so to speak. But there are many times when we need to take a step to the side and not have that affair that's going to ruin our marriage, or that's a big deal step to the side, but lots of small steps to the side where there was just about to be the thought that we should have been able to tolerate, but we don't, we just rush on by it. If we can do this thing of taking a step to the side more often in a more practiced way, that gives us the spaciousness so that we can think and tolerate these difficult thoughts. I love that. And it speaks to Nancy Klein, who I'm sure you know, with her book Time to Think, where you're when you're a coach, you don't let your client off the hook, you, when they're on that verge of saying something, you stay quiet, and you give them that space in order to step in into the discomfort as well. I, I I'm going to admit something here, I, I did I did quite a while back, and it's why the the book resonated so deeply with me. I I, do, I did this practice of working on things when when I slept because I think I read about maybe Tesla did it or maybe uh, um, Bohm uh, Bohm did it where he had this like isolated chamber which sound was isolated and he would write down the question and then take a nap and and oftentimes he'd have written the answer. And uh, I, so I was trying to do my version of that as much as I can with two young children. <laughs> but one of the things that actually came up for me where I asked myself difficult questions, because I have this, uh, and it'll sound, it'll sound extremely optimistic. But I, I asked myself a question a few years ago, Eric, where it was, imagine you could live life where you always did the right thing, even if it was difficult. So you 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 leaned into the dissonance of decisions, you felt in your gut, oh, this job is not serving me anymore. And I, I, I asked myself, is there anything in there that that you're hiding, Aiden? And one of the things came up to me, which was, am I genuinely happy for other people who achieve extraordinary success? So if it's a friend, particularly if they're close to me or a friend, Absolutely. yeah, and and that that percolated to use your word once when I was asleep and I was like kind of going wow because I, I think I am but then I go am I really though and that was an extremely uncomfortable thought for me to have but one that I was happy to explore and then lean into more and catch myself in the act of you know celebrating for somebody else and kind of going is that real and asking that question I'd love your thoughts on that because this is the type of thing you're talking about just to uh, speak to that personally, um, I know that I deeply don't want other people to succeed. I know that. Um, I can put on a good face about other people succeeding, but um, I have my grandiose, narcissistic, arrogant uh, inner personality. And that has to be okay as long as it's dealt, it's dealt with. And my life purpose statement 
even though I believe that we have multiple life purposes, I do believe we can encapsulate those many life purposes life purposes in a statement if we care to. Mine is just mine is exactly like yours, actually. It's do the next right thing. And so even if we have these shadowy parts to our personality, and we do, we have a big trickster nature. I find the trickster archetype in world literature super interesting. We have a lot of trickster stuff in us, mischievous stuff, but deeper than mischievous, mean stuff in us. But if we adamantly do the next right thing, then it doesn't matter so much that we have this mean tricksterly stuff in us. It, it's not that we've transcended it, it's just that we've decided We've put on the mantle of meaning maker and we've decided to do the next right thing. <laughs> but a great way to finish on, on an optimistic note. By the way, you asked where we are on all this. We're just going on to step two of 18. <laughs> so one of 18 hours <laughs> down, Eric. So I will let you go. I know you have a client uh, to, to attend to. So thank you so much for your time. I'm really looking forward to part two. I hope our audience got as much as I have out of it. Please buy the book because that all the steps are plotted out there. And as Eric mentioned, many of us other books are in existence in there, including reducing anxiety, so you can get to sleep thinking in the first place. But for now, author of sleep thinking, Eric Mazel, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much. And see you again soon. Great to be with you, man. Sorry, I know you're rushing off. So perfect time in five minutes for a mental amuse bouche. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that episode with Eric Maisel on his book, The Magic of Sleep Thinking. I certainly got a lot out of the book. I can't believe we got through step one of 18. I thought we'd get through perhaps nine or 10 today. Anyway, absolutely fa fascinating episode. And I want to thank our sponsor Zai for enabling us to do more with this show and bring you increased amount of content. Zai is boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services enabling business to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com. I'll see you very soon.